Fredo, you're my older brother, and I love you. But don't ever take sides with anyone against the family again. Godfather, coming up next. Alright, welcome back to Nerd is the New Cool. I'm Justin, and with me is my good friend, my new co-host for the day, because Lambert is still out with a baby, Mr. Brandon Dennis. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me, Justin. Yeah, I'm really... It's weird for you to call me Justin, but yeah, that's good. Uh, really <laughs> if glad... If you don't want it, I could change that. No, it's great. I love it. Uh, right. There's The Justins in this room outweigh the other people in the room. Um, so listen, I'm really excited about today's episode, and this is basically a mega, mega episode talking about the godfather because it is the 50th anniversary this year of when the original godfather came out brandon is actually responsible for picking this episode right i am yeah so i a little bit of a movie buff uh if you will and you know kind of went through and tried to figure out what was relevant in 2022 and this is one of them that surprised me i was not expecting to see it be that old i'm mad at myself for like not knowing that like as a as a self-anointed movie buff as well like i was like oh shit it is 50 years but again neither of us were born when this movie came out and i was you weren't born when the third one came out at least i was born when that one came out yeah that is correct so they've been they've been around for a long time so let's talk the godfather real quick summary according to imdb here's what it is quote the godfather follows vito corleone Don of the Corleone family, as he passes the mantle to his unwilling son, Michael. Debuted March 24th, 1972. It has a runtime of two hours and 55 minutes. Real quick about runtime. Did you feel like it was as long as it says, almost three hours? Did you did it feel like that to you on the rewatch? It didn't. There was one point where I had kind of looked down at, the, at my watch and was like, okay, I kind of, there was like one spot where I felt it, where it was kind of longer, but then it picked back up and then it got through it. Yeah, it is a, I mean, it's just nonstop. Like, it's, there's a lot of action going on throughout the course of the movie. We're going we're gonna to get to scenes here in a little bit, but, man, it, it really just it starts right off the bat, and it does not, doesn't really let you go. Some BS rankings. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a 97%. Holy shit, and IMDb gives it a 9.2. Ratings justified? I think so. I, think I mean, so. this is considered one of the greatest movies of all time. If you look at, like, any type of rating system, this is definitely in the top five, probably top three. Yeah, and there's so many facets of what can be involved in that ranking system too. I mean, from you know, and we'll get into it again later here. But you know, the the different pieces of just from a cinematography standpoint, mm-hmm. and the acting and the casting and the plot, the storyline, like all of those things factor into that. That's justified. Yeah, you're in for a real nerd treat today, everyone. So the next category, the Tarantino Award for writing. So there's pretty much two writers with this one. First of all, we've got Mario Puzo who wrote the book. Um, he also wrote The Sicilian, which came out in 1984, and that was, believe it or not, turned into a movie that starred Christopher Lambert. It does not have super high ratings. It does not have 97% on Rotten Tomatoes. I think it was like less than 50%, but I do love Christopher Lambert. Do you love Christopher Lambert? Uh, so do you know who Christopher Lambert is? <laughs> I do not even know who Christopher Lambert He's is. He's the Highlander. He's the Highlander. Anyway, ah, okay. let's move on. <laughs> Francis Ford Coppola also wrote the screenplay. And you may know him now from his writing chops. He wrote Patton and The Great Gatsby, the 1974 version, as well as Godfather Part Two and Part Three. Makes sense. Yeah. Okay. And into the director, also same person, Francis Ford Coppola. So he co-wrote it, or wrote the screenplay, and he also directed it. His directing chops: Godfather Two, Apocalypse Now, Peggy Sue Got Married, Godfather Three, Bram Stoker's Dracula, and The Rainmaker. That's a pretty eclectic group of 
films there. It is. It's different. You know, it's a wide wide range. He's yeah. shown his range there. I feel like he's not pigeonholed like some of the other directors that we know that are pretty much like, uh, they're known for sci-fi, they're known for drama, they're known for, I mean, whatever. Yeah, right? they like one-trick pony. He's all over the place. Quick Coppola info, because I found this incredibly interesting. He's got a lot of ties to some pretty well, speaking of those well-known directors that we know, he graduated, or he did graduate work at UCLA, and in 1969, Coppola and a person that we know, dear, near and dear to our hearts of this show, is George Lucas. They established American Zootrope. I said that probably wrong. Zootrope. Anyway, it's an independent film production company that's based that was based out of, out of San Francisco. And their first project was THX 1138, which is basically like everyone knows is Lucas's like essentially launching off uh, point. Came out in 1971 and was produced by both Coppola and directed by George Lucas. Coppola also produced the second film that Lucas, or Lucas directed, which was American Graffiti. So this is really taking him back to the 70s, but he pretty much gets his, gets his career started in the early 70s. And uh, he's actually only directed five other films since 1997, most of which we really, we really wouldn't know. Yeah, I mean, that's surprising, because when you're in a company like that, you'd think to you know, kind of stick around and, and stay heavily involved, but yeah, yeah I'm surprised. Well, and one of fun fact here is that actually the reason why Coppola actually did agree to film or direct this film was because he was basically in debt to Warner Brothers <laughs> after producing that aforementioned film, THX 1138. And George Lucas basically said, hey, listen, you got to take this job <laughs> to uh, pay off some bills. And also, it's a good career move. So, you know, it, it, it's also funny, like, as you think about the storyline of The Godfather, he's indebted to Lucas, so he's got to do this service mm. for it. So you kind of have that tie-in. It's like, I wonder if that had any tie-in to kind of, you know, getting in there where Lucas is like, hey, you know, I, I gave you this favor, now I'm calling on you to repay that. Yeah, maybe there's a little, little connection there. <laughs> I like that. We're going to tie a lot of mob stuff in today, so well, that's a good place to start. Okay, so our next category, now we get to actually do a little bit of deciding who we think is the best. So first off, we've got the Tom Hanks Best Leading Role Award. So we've got Marlon Brando, who plays the Don, and Al Pacino, who plays Michael. What's your vote for best leading role? So best leading role. Um, I would say that for this, it's, it's hard. It's tough because you've got, you've got the patriarch of the family in the beginning of it, and then you've got the replacement of the hierarchy of the family that comes in. So you, you have both of them that are very pertinent roles to the story. Um, they're both portrayed very, very well. Um, I think for me it would have to be Michael Corleone as Al Pacino just because of the character arc that you see from him. You know, it starts out as, as Michael and he's, you know, you're just now meeting him from that opening sequence, um, well, the second opening sequence, excuse me. But then for Don Corleone, you know what you're getting as soon as you see him on screen. So there's not much change that happens as far as the character behavior for him. Yeah, that's fair. And I actually think that this is pretty much a good parallel as to their careers, right? So you've got Marlon Brando, who's the aging actor, and he was well-known before and kind of a hot shit, which we see in The Godfather 2. And here's Michael, who's essentially Pacino, fresh-faced actor, and kind of by the end of this, he's kind of on top of Hollywood, right? Yeah. I mean, the amount of films, we'll talk a little bit later on about the peak of his mountain, but... Um, I kind of agree with you with, with Pacino. I think he wins it here. Yeah. Ironically, that he didn't win any type of award for this, which we'll get to yeah. later on. <laughs> that okay, was... so we're picking, we're, we're picking Pacino. Hot take, very controversial, I'm sure. 
but Pacino for us. All right, All in the Family Awards. So what we've done here is we've listed, as opposed to the you know secondary and tertiary characters, what we did was we kind of broke this into two categories. We've got the good guys, the family, and the bad boys, people that are against the family. So Family Award, All in the Family Award. James Caan plays Sonny. Uh, John Cazale, and I, I know I butchered that name, Cazale, I think, uh, he plays Fredo, mm-hmm. who that dude, I mean, he's basically, he was only in a handful of movies, and all of them are freaking incredible. Like, the amount yeah. of awards, like, with that one, with uh, Deer Hunter and a couple other ones, like, it's, it's only, like, three or four movies. Anyway, Rob Duvall plays Tom Hagen. Talia Shire plays Connie. <laughs> you may know her better from Rocky, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Diane Keaton plays Kay. Richard... Castellano plays Clemenza, and Franco Citi plays Calo. And it's, if you don't know who Calo is, it's one of the boys back in Sicily. Yeah, he's the contact there. He's the, the good. He's the, the good one. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Spoiler alert. He's the good one. Oh, oh. If you haven't seen this movie by this point, sorry. Fifty years, I think, is the statute of limitations of spoilers <laughs> yeah, for a film. We, right? That is that is not our problem. Yeah, yeah. He's the point. good dude. So, all right. Who, who's your favorite All in the Family award? Uh, so for the All in the Family Award, I would have to go. It's it's a again, it's another close race here. Uh, it's a tie between for me Tom Hagen and Clemenza because you both have oh. two inner workings here uh, that are vital pieces of this family as it operates the the cogs in the in the machine, if you will. Um, you know Tom Hagen, he has this this arc as as we go through, and you know he's trying to, you know get into um, the business and he's he's worked his way in there uh, he's seen as a member of the family uh, but not quite there as a member of the family and you know we'll kind of get into that a little bit later too uh, but then for um, the other piece of Clemenza you've got another guy that you know you've got your, your guy that's going out and doing a lot of the the work for you and you know a, a big piece of that too uh, I think though I'm going to land on Tom Hagen for me just you know it, it's a good it, it's a it's a feel good character for the most part until the end there you know um, but for the most part as he's going through there like you see a lot of that that feeling and us as the audience like we're outsiders too as we're we're bring, being brought into this family so that would be for the all in the family award as an outsider from the outside looking in I'd go with Tom yeah ironically you pick the adopted son yes as as the as the family award so. First of all, Clemenza is essentially the person who does everything in this film. He's always the one out making the hits, having the conversations, meeting with people. Like he's moving and shaking. I'm not sure what the rest of them are doing. Having said that, I got you. Got to go, James Con. Man, he is fucking incredible. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Come on, everything James Con does, he's going to win another award later on too. At least in my opinion. So I'm picking James Con. But I, I, I will. I'm okay with Duval though. I think if if we were we had to pick one together. I do love Rob Duvall. And Tom Hagen's character is, like you said, he's got a lot going on there. Like, he's he's the consigliere. Like, mm-hmm. he's got a lot of stuff going on. Um, I love him. Anyway, next category, the Bad Boys Award. So who's the best villain, sort of, throughout the course of this movie? And there are a handful of them. Sterling Hayden plays Captain McCluskey. Al Lettieri plays Slazzo. Abe Vigoda, again, spoiler alert, he's bad. He plays Tessio. <laughs> uh, Richard Conti plays uh, Barzini, Alex Rocco plays Mo Green, and Angelo Infanti plays Fabrizio, and he's the bad guy in Sicily. Okay. Ends up being the bad guy in Sicily. I was going to say the guy wearing the hat, but now I'm remembering they're both wearing those hats. <laughs> yeah, so it's kind of, he's though. the one that's not always, ca- no, they're both carrying around guns all the time too. I don't, I don't know how to necessarily differentiate them. 
All right, bad boy award. Who you got? Who's who's your favorite villain? Uh, this one, I think for me, it's it's gonna be a quick one. It's Salazzo because he's the one. You know, you have Barzini that is the puppeteer um, and pulling all the strings in the right places for it. But Salazzo is the one that you see is really the um, antagonist for the film uh, that changes everything for the family and mm-hmm. has all of those pieces in there that that kind of. Um, you know, set the course for what's going to happen next in there. Um, so it's a lot to for me. Yeah, I, I, I do tend to agree with you. He really is the one that is he's, – he's the main antagonist. Like, he, he is the one that starts the whole process, that starts – and honestly just has the conversations about whether or not they have drugs. They start backing people with drugs. He's, he's, he's good with a knife, which is a fun <laughs> villain trope, right? <laughs> yeah. I will say, though, I'm giving it a close second to McCluskey. I mean, the captain is such a fucking asshole. Like, I want to punch that dude in the face yeah. every time he's on screen. Like, he looks like, basically, he epitomizes what I would imagine a racist white man looks like in the 70s. Like, that's that dude. Yeah. So, he's villain 1B for me. But, yeah, Salazzo is, is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, real quick about the music. So, the John Williams category for music was done by Nino Rota. And Nino was born in Milan in 1911 and actually wrote operas. So if you think about, like, the music, and this is iconic, iconic music. I'm putting this up as far as with with actually John Williams and looking at Star Wars and other type of – so where he's influenced by, he wrote operas from 1942 to 1977, and he also wrote ballets from 57 to 78. So, I mean, that music – I mean, his background experience really – I mean, that's essentially like – it's like a – it's an opera. The entire time music's going on, right? It is. It's a beautiful piece. And the other thing that's that's really cool about – you know, Nino Rata being the person that has composed the music for it, is you have another Italian connection yeah. back to it. And you, you see that throughout the inner workings of the folks that are behind the scenes that are putting that that emphasis and that um, experience and that knowledge into it, too. So that's that's a nice piece of it, too. Yeah, we've got a breakdown later on talking, talking music, but yeah. we'll save that for just a few seconds. Okay, next category, scenes to nerd out on. So I'm going to kind of walk through some scenes that I wrote down. First of all, it's a three-hour-long movie. There's a shit ton of scenes. There are. And other than the intro, I do think that there's a lot of – the scenes are pretty quick, right? It's not like these these grand, like, all one set piece. It really jumps back and forth a lot. And even when we're talking, like, when they're over in Sicily, it also jumps back and forth. It's not one continuous shot. So I tried to condense it, but I only could get it down to 20 scenes. Maybe you, maybe you can do better. Maybe <laughs> You probably have some I forgot. Um, so scene number one just the entire opening with the undertaker right and really kind of sets the stage for like what's going on that there is a wedding going uh, essentially happening in the background but really it's you're meeting with this don he's unable to refuse a request on his daughter's wedding day really cool beginning i mean it it really tells a story without having to like have like a a narrator or like a like a like a sprawl you know like what's going on in the world we don't care this dude basically tells us what's happening in about 10 minutes less than that um the whole wedding, everything that's going on, there's a lot of shit happening at the wedding, all the dancing, all the different songs, just, again, building this world. Sonny's off with one of the bridesmaids, so it's like it sets every character. Michael's <laughs> there. He's back from the war. Like It really tells everyone's like story. Fredo's drunk. Um, all right, jumping forward now, the horse head in the bed, and really just that whole back and forth with Hagen. Um, anyway, that, I think that's my next scene. Luca Brazzi sleeps with the fishes, that entire part when he gets killed. And then they find out what the fish means. Yeah, and that's a big piece that you see come up in every other yeah. trope of this genre of the mobster, the organized crime films, is, you know, the sleeps with the fishes. Like, 
That is huge. I mean, that's like a storyline in itself in Sopranos. I feel like that the entire end of season two is nothing but like dead fish. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, it really is a big puss. Anyway, uh, if you haven't seen Sopranos, go watch it. And you'll know what I'm talking about when you come back. The assassination attempt on the Don, that whole entire part. What a badass, too, for that film. Like, just mm-hmm. Corleone shot six times. Yeah. Six times. Another spoiler alert. Sorry, guys. But six times. And he walked. I mean, doesn't walk away from it. But he comes back. He comes to from it. Yeah, Fredo's more, seems more injured than anyone <laughs> yeah. in that process. The killing of Pauly is the next scene. Leave the gun, take the cannoli. Mm-hmm. We got the hospital scene where McCluskey, we know that entire, you know, beats the shit out of Michael and that whole cat and mouse thing with asking this random guy, the florist guy, to like act like he's holding the weapon. I thought that was pretty neat. Yeah. The Michael kills the uh, McCluskey and Salazzo. Just that entire part where yeah. he's, number one, planning for it, but then actually showing up, gets the gun, goes to the bathroom, et cetera. And the, the, the acting there for Pacino, the nervousness. You can mm-hmm. feel he's just like crawling out of his skin because he knows that what he's yeah. about to do is the first time he's ever done anything like that, and that basically what seals There's his There's a really good it. like zoom in on his face as Salazzo and McCluskey are talking, and it's just focusing on his facial expressions. Yeah. And yeah, he is clearly nervous. Yeah, <laughs> just, just a tad bit. I kind of chunked together just basically the entire montages of Michael back in Italy. You know, he gets married. His wife blows up. <laughs> poor, poor Apollonia. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Monday, Such Tuesday, a sweet girl. Thursday. All right. Sonny beats up Carlo. Just that entire like, – I'm talking like when he beats him up in the street. He's yeah. smashing with the trash can. <laughs> I mean, I was laughing during that no, scene. Yeah. I don't know yeah, if you it's, Yeah, it, it, it is so obnoxious, but it's, it's, so, it's and, so And just funny. Sonny's outfit, too. He's got this wife beater on, <laughs> tucked in, like really tight belt. It, it just – if I were to see that in the, in the streets, like it, you, you could not laugh at it because yeah. it's ridiculous. The entire Connie and Carlo confrontation that then leads to Sonny getting shot. Mm-hmm. I shot one million times. Yeah, he wasn't walking away from that one. He was not, no. The next thing I got is just the, the first time you meet all of the families. Like, you've met Partzini, you've obviously met Corleone, but now they're all together in this room, which I feel like is also another um, mobster movie kind of theme, trope, whatever you want to call it, that they, you know, you got to meet with these all families and then work out your issues. Mm-hmm. The whole Michael comes back to get K, which I think is this is actually my nomination for the worst scene. <laughs> it just doesn't doesn't, doesn't make, make any, any sense. sense. Thank you, Jinx. So it, it doesn't make any sense at all. Like number one, not from his perspective, but what the fuck is K doing? Is K the worst character? I, oh, we didn't talk about it earlier. Talk about best character. Is she the worst <laughs> character in the movie? I would have to say so because she's just so aloof the entire time. You know, on the outside looking in, doesn't know what's going on. She's so, you know, concerned. Doesn't believe Michael. How does went she through that whole thing? I and know. then, and then, the dude's gone for what a whole year. Long enough to get year? married. Long enough to get married. You know, go through the whole motion of being in Sicily, being forgotten about, and then comes back like, "Hey, baby, you won't take me back." Okay. And is she teaching? Is she like with a? Is she teaching class at that moment? She just leaves the kids. She in the streets? She walks away from the kids. I don't know what's going on. It's there. recess. It's the end of the day. <laughs> like I hope something is happening where it's parent pickup, and you know that's where she's walking yeah. away. But just a terrible, terrible. Well, that's the worst scene because Kay is the worst. Yes. All right, Sorry, we digress. <laughs> the okay. So now Michael is pretty much taken over, and Michael is in Vegas, and he's dealing with Fredo and Mel Green, and you know, again that that famous quote. Uh, let's see, Michael and Vito, they have their heart to heart, which is. Again, this is really like the, the changing over the hand, like exchange, like saying you're in charge now, yeah. and also giving him the advice of the person that comes to you when I'm pat when I die with the meeting, like that's actually the bad guy. Yeah. Not 
the other way around, mm-hmm. which is obviously amazing advice. Yeah. Uh, let's see what else. Oh, Vito passes with little Anthony in the garden. Emotional scene for some. Very sad. The funeral of Vito. And again, that's when you realize Tessio is in fact the rat. And then the entire baptism montage, which then leads into the Carlo death. Oh, we'll talk about the, we'll we'll talk about the scenes. <laughs> and, then, and then lastly, just the just the <laughs> kissing of the scene, the kissing of the ring, and the door closes, and he's now the Don. And credits. Okay. Yes. Did I forget any scenes? Uh, no. I mean, you you pretty much hit the nail on the head. There. A lot so of scenes. <laughs> there's a there's a lot of scenes there. Um, for me, the the. And we'll kind of get into some of the quotes too, but just that more specifically in that wedding scene where you are first meeting Michael and Kay and that exchange where, you know, he's, you know, soldier coming back home and, you know, he's got the girlfriend on his arm and, you know, everybody's happy, go lucky and fantastic. And she thinks it's a joke, you know, because we've all kind of done that where somebody mm-hmm. doesn't know something about it. Oh, you know, he's, he does this or that. And, you know, she kind of laughs it off and Michael's like, no, not really. <laughs> like the, the, the quote, and I'll bring it up here. Luca Brasi and Vito Corleone. Uh, it was how how do they know Johnny Fontaine? Mm-hmm. Why why is he at your your sister's wedding? Like what what's the connection there? Oh well, you know my father helped him out. It's his godson, you know, and that's that's how it happened. Um, and he went to the guy that needed to sign the contract for him. And you know I'm, I'm butchering the quote here because I don't made have him offer he couldn't refuse. Yeah, made him offer he couldn't refuse. But before that, you know the just the the detail that he goes into with telling Kate like that's a pretty like harsh introduction to a family. Well, he like, says either your signature or your brains are going to be on are going to be on the contract. Yeah, <laughs> and puts a gun behind his head like that. Yeah. That right there, that's where Kate should have ran. Well, and well, that's and that that is part of like the the brilliance of the screenwriting is that you've built this entire world and you pretty much know what everyone's about just by small little anecdotes and stories like that yeah. and what the characters are doing during the wedding scene. And the wedding scene is pretty long. It's it's You could group that whole thing together if you wanted to, which I kind of did. Yeah. But and that's the first 25 minutes of the movie. Yeah. But, uh, you know, just, just that scene where he, you know, he didn't have to go into detail. And you think about, you know, introductions with, like, spouses and the first introduction of the families. And there's some things where you're like, you know, hey, I got to kind of warn you about this or... Uh, you know, my, my sister's kind of crazy or my dad, you know, he, you know, makes inappropriate jokes from time to time or, you know, my, my mom's going to be a lot, you know, something like that. And you, you have that family introduction. And that's what I, that's what I got to thinking about. It was like, you know, I kind of thought like I was not, not, you would think that he would maybe warn her before the wedding. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like he didn't and brought her in. It was like, so what does your father do? Oh, well, he's, you know, he's this really, really hard ass guy that is going to, you know, make people do stuff that he wants them to do, whether or not they agree to it or not um that was one so is that your favorite scene <laughs> that, that was one scene for me okay that was that was one scene for me oh my, i got you okay. my my favorite scene uh was that baptism scene the the whole montage of going through and seeing the development of michael fully accepting and into that realm of okay i am the new godfather this is me I, you know this is my this is my path, you know, that I'm going to stick to. You know, I've made that decision. And I've got a question for you later on as we get into um, some things that kind of leads into, you know, a thought-provoking question about Michael. Okay. Um, but that, for me, was one of the big ones. Uh, the Yeah, I mean, it's listen, that is kind of like the – that's the iconic murder montage. Yes. Right? Yeah. And I think a lot of movies have tried to recreate it and have been very unsuccessful with it. It's just so incredible. The music, even that goes along with it, it's so like overly dramatic almost. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, that's got to be my favorite. But I do. I'm going to give a nod also for the opening. Having on the rewatch, and I haven't watched it in a few years. That opening scene with the Undertaker 
is so incredibly powerful. Incredibly powerful. Just is. the speech, even that the Undertaker is giving before you even seen, before you even see the Godfather at all or anybody else in the room. Yeah, I mean, the slow motion pan, like, it just it's a movie making like magic. Yeah, and and just the the you know we'll, again we'll get into lighting here too, but the the lighting on his face and just his quote. I mean, his eyes are so dark when he's going through that monologue of saying. I, you know, have explained this whole issue that's coming to me, uh, that's come, you know, come across me and my family, and I don't trust America anymore. So I have to go elsewhere to find the solution that I really want. And then, you know, the response that you get from, from Vito is surprising. It's surprising for that man to have that response to Bonacera. So I, I enjoyed that scene too, and you know everybody you know is gonna you know have their different pieces on, on what scene is their favorite. But for me, it's it's the baptism scene, the opening scene, and one scene that I think it's overlooked a little bit is the scene where Michael and Sonny and um, Tom are all in the the office discussing business, and the plot that takes place for how they're going to go after Salazzo and Captain McCluskey. Like, that's Michael. Nobody's saying, Michael, you have to do this. And everybody's like, you know, you know, Michael, you're not involved. Dad wouldn't want that. You know, we don't want that for you. But that's where he's making that decision of, I, I, I choose this, and I want this for my father. Well, it tells the story of how brilliant he is, but it also shows, like, how the dichotomy of him between of him versus Sonny. Yeah. And Sonny's going, what are you going to do? You're going to get, get blood all over your fancy shoes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's, yeah. he's 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 getting all emotional about yeah, this. Yeah, like, and, and you, you know, walk just... up behind him and go bada bada bing and yeah. shoot him. Like, it's <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that is that is a pretty great scene with the three brothers, right? That you don't really yeah tells again tells that story without explicitly saying here's what each person's yeah. about. Three of the four. By, three by, of the four. By the way, you know, Fredo's, Fredo's already well, Fredo's, out. Fredo's off going. We'll talk about where Fredo is. He's, we got yeah. some got some Fredo thoughts. Yeah. So that's that. Those are the scenes for me. Okay. Those, those three. All right. So we're gonna go into nerd facts, and we got a ton of shit to talk about because there is so much. <laughs> To be clear, a lot of this is just, uh, you know, internet research that we've done. It, it hopefully is true, but it may not be. A little bit of it I feel like some it, of us might know off the top of our head. But sure. most of it is, is, is research. Yeah, uh, don't judge us. Okay. <laughs> you start so, first. So who invented organized crime? A lot of what we're going through here and, and seeing in this film is related directly to the Italian mafioso and all of that organized crime piece of it. So mafia, it actually began in the Middle Ages. That was news to me. I didn't know it went that far back. Um, overthrow rulers in that area for, you know, the Sicily um, area in Italy and that, you know, long before even you know, it was a, it was a country or any of that. There's a really great documentary. It's on CNN. I think it's on HBO Max now. It's called The, the Popes. Mm. And that's really, if you talk about going back even further, talks about that maybe even could have been the beginning of the, the mafia, yeah. you know, quote unquote mafia. And the popes and like the, how people were elected and all that. Anyway, it's super interesting stuff. Yeah. But that, that's where it started. Um, a, a gentleman by the name of Mussolini. You may, may recognize that name. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he actually almost uh, completely eliminated the mafia uh, in the early twenties. So that was surprising to me as well to to find that out that one man almost wiped out the entire organized crime. And you think about that, how far organized crime has come, and he almost wiped it out. Based on, you know, arresting a lot of people and, you know, killing a lot of people and, you know, being the dictator that he was. Yeah, him and uh, the other guy tried to wipe out a lot of people they, out. They did. They did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah. But, you know, he almost had him out. But organized crime as, as, a, as a concept, uh, you know, you had the mafia that was, you know, the, the guys that, and it, it wasn't the stereotypical guys. You know, you had people that 
we're in these roles of doing things that were shady and, and back dealings, and but there it, there was really no organization to it, um, and that came from a gentleman by the name of Moranzano, Salvatore Moranzano. I'm probably butchering that name as well. Moranzano. Moranzano. You gotta you gotta put your fingers. That's together how they pronounce and, and it. And it there's too. another really good movie or show called The Making of the Mob mm-hmm. that breaks down kind of the New York and the coming immigrating from Sicily. Yeah. But this guy, he was an immigrant to the U.S. after World War One. Uh, came through here uh, in the 30s uh, with his gang. Uh, you know, they were already in a lot of those back dealings and the, um, you know, racketeering and all that. But there was a lot, lot, lot of fighting that was going on, and it was chaos, and you know, ensued. And and he actually was, you know, uh, went and did some college work and you know some studies. And from his collegiate studies, he learned about the hierarchy of an American corporation. You have one man on the top, kind of the pyramid scheme feel, where you have the one man on top and you've got a couple more guys and it's all delegated down. So the guy on the very top, his hands are never going to get dirty, but he's the guy that's in control and then he delegates down all the way down till you have this big giant organization of people. And that is what he applied to making these, you know, five families and, you know, applying all these concepts to there. It's just kind of funny that, you know, you know, am I really ever going to use this in school? Probably not. Well, Salvatore, he he did. <laughs> he he absolutely used that, that yeah. concept from school of going in there and doing that. So uh, that was uh, kind of the where it started. Yeah. So talking a little bit about now back to the Godfather, like the actual film itself. So if you didn't know this, this is interesting. Coppola actually wanted the director's cut of this film to be two hours and six minutes, but Paramount Pictures said no. We want a longer cut, more family scenes, and it actually that's when it became two hours and 55 minutes. You generally don't see it going that way. Usually no. it's the other way around. Yeah, usually, like, it's, usually it's the Snyder. Way too much, yeah. The Snyder wants a four-hour movie, and the theaters <laughs> or the, the, the production company's like, uh, let's maybe cut that in half there, yeah. guy. Yeah. Right? It's a little bit too long. So I, I'd never actually ever heard of a version of it going backwards like this. Yeah. Pretty crazy. Yeah, and that other piece there, too, with you know going back to Coppola, uh, you know, he insisted on the film being called Mario Puzo's, the Godfather. So it wasn't just the Godfather. He wanted the the credit going to the guy that made the story, and I think that was you know I think that's a nice nod. I think that's a respectful you know nod to Mario yeah. Puzo. Well, I, I think this is one of those movies that we don't necessarily think of like a as a book book to movie, you know remake, mm-hmm. right? But it it is, and it's it's that's what he said. He said it's so close to the actual novel that Puzo should get the credit. Yeah, because he just turned it into basically wrote it as a movie. Yeah, from the novel. And the movie itself took only 62 days to shoot. That's, right? a, that's crazy. I mean, nowadays... You think about production now and how a film would take. I mean, you know, you've got your hour, hour 20 minutes tops film, and it's weeks. It's weeks of shooting. Yeah, yeah so kind of a little bit on Puzo, too. All of these... There are other novels, by the way. And the novels are called The Godfather Returns, which this one takes place during, during Godfather 2, but really expands on Fredo, Hagen, and also Johnny Fontaine. So this one really wasn't made into a movie, but it's kind of like the behind-the-scenes stuff. Another book or novel is called The Godfather's Revenge, which this is Michael post-Fredo death. So it's kind of like in between Godfather 2 and 3 yeah. is when this one happens. Uh, and then they were written by Mark uh, Weingartner, which is uh, – we also have The Family Corleone, which is – so these are novels, again, based on the characters. We've got another novel called The Family Corleone, which was written by Edward Falco. And this is actually a prequel – that tells the story of Vito as he consolidates power, essentially post-Godfather 2 flashback, pre-Godfather 1. 
And it really, because we don't really learn a lot about Sonny and Tom and like their major roles. Definitely not Sonny. Maybe a little bit, a little bit about Tom. Mm -hmm. So the family Corleone kind of fills the gap there. And that, you know, that's funny too, thinking about that. Like these guys went out and did it. Like talk about your super mega fan of the storyline of, you know, whether Mar whether it was Mario Puzo's novel or Capola's, uh, Coppola's uh, film. But you, you loved it so much. You're like, I have to continue this story. Like, you've got different writers that are introduced here that, you know, come well, into play with this. It's like so. fan fiction, but, yeah. like, it's they're giving them permission to yeah. do it. And that right? that's a cool, you know, nod, too. Again, this, you know, the, the respect between all of the creators of these pieces. This happened cool. with Tolkien, too. So he wrote The Lord of the Rings, obviously, in The Hobbit, but then a lot of the other books that fill in more about Middle Earth, pre and post, mm -hmm. are written by family members of his. Yeah. Kind of continuing the legacy. Of these books... I am shocked that these have not been made into movies yet. Yeah. Especially nowadays with the way IP works. Every, like, yeah. You get like a property. I mean, they just run with it. They make TV shows and all this. Sh I mean, it's crazy. I'm actually very shocked that they haven't re redone this yet. We should probably send a letter to somebody. I volunteer as tribute to help. Yeah. I think we. I think Paramount <laughs> needs to listen to this right now and, and get yeah. on the get get on it. Yep. So <laughs> let me let me mention and introduce. Gordon Willis, and then you're going to talk a little bit more about the lighting. So Gordon Willis actually earned himself the nickname the Prince of Darkness because his sets, he's the cinematographer, by the way, his sets were so underlit that Paramount Pictures executives actually thought the footage was too dark, and they essentially, Willis persuaded um, him, or the, the executives and Francis Ford Coppola, that it was actually going to emphasize the shadiness of the Corleone family's dealings. Yes, and what's also interesting about that is that there were often jokes about Willis on set that the scenes were so dark that if, for whatever reason, a character, you know, an actor in the scene misses their mark, which for those of you that aren't familiar with like the cinematography piece of it, the mark is actually the tape on the floor where they're supposed to go and stand. So if they missed their mark, they were completely out of the scene, out of focus, you couldn't see their face at all because it was so dark. So going into a little bit more of the lighting here, the overhead lighting technique is what Willis used and where he got the nickname Don, you know, the Prince of Darkness. Um, was that he used the overhead lighting to portray all of these like feelings that you know it's it's subconscious we're not he's not telling us this but he's showing us this and that's where these feelings are coming from all of these characters so the first one Vito Don Vito's lighting he has these very black eyes he's a man of mystery he does he won't let us in to get to know him we have no idea what we're what we're going to get out of this character in that Bonacera scene again with Bonacera you know, he is, his eyes are very dark. It shows that distrust in America that he's going through without even saying anything. He's portraying all of this with the lighting piece to it. Uh, and what's super interesting is as you go through the movie, Michael Corleone's lighting, it drastically changes throughout the entire film. When you first see him in that scene with Kay at the very beginning of the movie, you can see his whole face, everything's nice, hunky-dory, happy, lighting, you know, the wedding, everybody's bright and happy. But on the inside, in that office with Don Corleone and Bonacera, all of the faces in that, they're all very dark, it's all very serious, it's all very ominous. But as the movie progresses and Michael moves into that role, he then becomes darker and darker to where you see half of his face and even less of his face, and you get that sick feeling in your stomach that's like, okay, something bad is going to happen here. This is like, if, by the way, if you are planning on taking a film class, you should maybe record chunks of this and impress your professor. Because yeah. they're going to be talking about that at some point, right? Yeah, yeah. No, You'll be making magic and skills and tricks. Now, I will say, as the film is progressively getting darker for Michael Corleone, you get to the point where he's in Sicily. 
And again, Willis, with everything that he's done, all the scenes that he shot, they can all be, you can take a still image of that, frame it, and it would be a beautiful masterpiece. All of the scenes in Italy, all of the colors, all of, the, you know, they're all very soft colors in the light area, the dark colors, you know, they're, they're very bold. Um, all of that can be said that, you know, you can take any still from that, hang it on the wall, it's beautiful. But Sicily, it's very bright, very happy. You know, Michael has gotten away from everything. It's all behind him. He's, he's very, you know, excited and happy. You can see a genuine happiness that he's, mm-hmm. you know, he's, he's gotten his vengeance, but he's, you know, not suffering the consequences for it. He's introduced into uh, Apollonia, you know, and then, you know, she's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then boom, done. And as soon as that explosion happens, what happens to Michael? He goes back to the dark side. Little little callback to some other movies, uh, but you know it's just kind of funny. Uh, the next character that we look at with the lighting piece is Sonny Sonny Corleone, and his face is bright lit the entire film. You don't really associate this with the you know happy go lucky because we all know Sonny has a hot temper, but it's just that he is too much out in the open. You know, in that meeting with Salazzo and the narcotics business, you know he out you know he misspeaks over Vito because he's out there. Everybody knows exactly what Sonny's thinking all the time because he's so outwardly spoken about it. Got that hair popping out. Yeah, <laughs> the hair popping out, uh, exactly. Uh, but he's a hothead, far too open. Kay's lighting at the beginning. She's very bubbly and light and bright, and you know she's got her sundress on at the wedding, and she's very excited and happy, and slowly but surely Kay's lighting gets darker. More and more of those scenes with her in it and Michael at the end there where she's discussing it and the last scene that we see doesn't belong to Michael Corleone. It belongs to Kay and her transition into what we may eventually see go into the darkness, uh, which was just, you know, you don't expect that with Kay either, seeing that, uh, which was just a cool piece. It could be more, (laughs) just to make fun of Kay more, it's more like as she becomes more in the dark, it's shocking how little she knows. Yes. It's ridiculous. She's... Yeah, no, she she is a... a I'm sorry, she's just a bad character. Yes. I don't like Kay. Yeah. Sorry, Kay. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not sorry for that. Uh, Tom Hagen, another really, really great lighting piece character. Because, again, you've got a German-Irish character. He's not Sicilian. He's always on the outside. He's half in, half out. Through the movie, you see half of his face lit, half of it's dark. Because he's always trying to, you know, he's in the inner workings of the family. He's the consigliere. Um, you have that piece of Tom's character that is always going to be half on the outside. And Sonny flat out calls him out for that. You know, when they're in that heated scuttle, scuttle, he calls Tom out for that. He's like, you're not even Sicilian. I didn't have that during the, you know, olive oil wars like, you know, <laughs> like Vito had in the olive oil wars. Um, and I've already touched on, on Bonacera there, but. Yeah, these were all of the the lighting pieces that you know I I absolutely nerded out on the cinematography. No, it's it was, fun. It was beautiful. You know what mm-hmm. Willis was able to accomplish with yep. so little. I mean, you think about the technology that we have now, and what he the tools that he had to work with, and it still holds up. I think that's kind of what makes it better, actually. Yeah, yeah. And then going into you know again with Willis's cinematography skills, the POV shots, every scene with the exception of the Bonacera scene at the beginning where you have that uneasy feeling of that zoom in to his face and the dark eyes. Um, there are no zooms, and every shot is a point-of-view shot so that you are d- thrown right into the family. You are experiencing everything as it's happening in real time. It's from the vantage point of a first-person point of view, which is you know just very interesting, uh, another piece of being just thrown right in there into it. And what's funny is that... Um, Coppola, 
wanted one scene where at the very end there where you have the, the overhead shot, uh, or excuse me, not at the end, but when Vito is shot, you know, six times, the overhead shot, and Willis didn't want to do it because it wasn't a point of view shot because nobody's going to be standing up that high. Well, Coppola made the joke, well, that's God's point of view or Orson Welles' point of view, uh, per se, with the kind of touch of evil piece to it. Another callback to, a, to an older film. Um, but yeah, just... Yeah, Willis is doing some pretty good work in there. And it really does feel like you're part of the story, which you know, it speaks to the, the point of view yep. perspective. So let me tell you a little bit about Brando. He's pretty funny. So Brando wanted to make Don Corleone look like a bulldog. That's why he actually stuffed his cheeks with cotton wool <laughs> for the audition. And then during the actual filming, he wore a mouthpiece that, that a dentist made and uh, it's actually this appliance, believe it or not, is on display in the American Museum of the Moving Image in Queens, New York. Yes, it should be. Yeah. It's um, a rightful place for it. Five they, families they, in New York. And they definitely parody this later on if you've ever seen um, Robin Hood, Prince of, or, I'm sorry, Men in Tights, mm. where he's, he's got the cotton. He's like, ah, <laughs> oh, sorry, I just got back from the dentist. <laughs> uh, my bad. Yeah. Um, and speaking of Brando, uh, Don Vito Corleone's distinctive voice was actually based on real-life mobster Frank Costello. Brando had seen him on television and uh, decided to imitate his husky whisper in the film. Definitely works. Yeah. No, I agree. The smack that Vito gives Johnny Fontaine was actually not in the script. And <laughs> Brando, I mean, Brando is pretty great in this movie. I may have to rethink about my, my best pick for, for leading man. But uh, Brando improvised the smack, and Al Martino, who plays Fontaine, is completely confused, and that reaction was totally real. And according to James Caan, Martino didn't know whether to laugh or cry. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're just doing this scene, all of a sudden someone smacks you and starts going, what's the matter with you, huh? Yeah, like a man. Yeah. Like a man. What are you doing? So the cat held by Brando <laughs> in the opening scene was a stray that Coppola found while on the lot at Paramount Pictures. It wasn't in the script, but uh, he actually thought that the cat and its purring muffled um, you know, sounds kind of, well, I'm sorry, his purring muffled some of Brando's dialogue, and as a result, most of his lines had to be looped. So, like, him having the cat, even though it looks good aesthetically, kind of screwed up the audio. We'll, we'll hear more about the cat a little bit later on. A little too. more about the cat? Little, okay. For, for me personally, I think that was a cool piece of it. Yeah. Uh, but going into the Godfather Waltz, so one of the most iconic music pieces from cinema history is the Godfather Waltz. It's the leading intro that you hear before you see anybody else you hear the solo or the excuse me the waltz played on the solo of the trumpet so what nino rota was able to do very similar to what willis did with the lighting is he was able to attribute all of these different pieces to particular characters so the trumpet is supposed to represent vito corleone it's at the top dog it stands alone it's all alone because being the godfather's a lonely place on the top to be uh, the arrangement itself is actually in c minor which conveys a darker feeling so it's not uh, something that you would typically hear in that way that you would play that waltz uh, as a piece of music it's more ominous so you have that on uneasy feeling right away before you even see anybody else the music piece of it uh, the next one that joins in with that is the accordion and the mandolin. Uh, they are associated with the Italian tradition, calling back to Sicily. They do not play over the trumpet. They are the um, lower-ranking members of the family, if you will, in the hierarchy of the organized family. Uh, they uh, know when to join in. They know their place, uh, just as you imagine the other ranks of the family. 
as the song progresses, then you hear the clarinet. The clarinet slithers into the background, much like the soundtrack you'd imagine a snake to have the components of the trumpet. So much symbolism here. So much symbolism. <laughs> and like I said, I'm going to nerd out on all of this, all these <laughs> little pieces here because I just think it's so interesting and so amazing that you know you had the wherewithal to put all of this in here. Like I, I couldn't do that. Like that's why I'm not, I'm not over you know on the other side of the the country making films, but I think it's just, it's really fun to to look at all of this back on. And the last set of instruments that are allowed to play the waltz, and I, you know, I emphasize the allowed because, you know, this is a, it's a tight-knit family, is the strings. They're meticulously plucked as you go through the waltz, provides a thin backdrop. The symbolism there is that everything is very fragile in this whole inner workings of the system of the Corleone family because you and all of the families you know you are at the top of your game but if you're buying oranges in the street and then everything changes like that so it's the fragility of it of the family and how quickly things can be broken I'm gonna ask my wife if she remembers all these things from her her uh, film class because I know she <laughs> learned a lot about the Godfather and I don't know if she remembers it or yeah. not so that was the opening scene of the, the waltz. That was the first time we heard the waltz as it all came together. Now, as the movie progresses, again, you've got Vito Corleone. He's going through the motions of being the godfather, but then it's passed on to Michael. Well, as it's passed on to Michael, the trumpet is representation for Vito Corleone. So Michael has to have his own instrument. And Rhoda puts in the oboe, which is not quite a clarinet, not quite a trumpet. It stands alone. It grabs your attention. It's also, you know, a different in that it stands alone on the top it's very you know iconic uh, when you hear that it's different it grabs your attention but interestingly enough as we find out at the end of the film in that last scene as the doors closing and Michael becomes the godfather the trumpet returns so what we then found out is that the trumpet didn't actually represent Vito Corleone it represented the godfather so Michael has made that full circle change from the oboe playing his bolts that you know, we've seen in the Italy scenes and you know, all of that, and through all of those scenes, the shooting scene with uh, at Louis Diner, it now returns full circle to back to the trumpet. He's the godfather as it comes in. And the last piece, and uh, I'll stop talking about all the music pieces. <laughs> uh, the waltz is never played with just Michael in one scene or just Vito in one scene. It's the last symbolism piece is the connection between the two. So it's either a transition scene where you go from Michael in one shot by himself to a scene with Michael and Vito, or vice versa, uh, where they're together. So it always has that connection and that link between the father and the son. These kind of things are things that I find super interesting, but I always wonder, like, is this the chicken before the egg type conversation? Like, are these things that we've worked out now after having watched it, or are these things that were intentionally done to create that symbolism? There's too much going on here for this to be completely farce that we just made it up yeah don't you think yeah I, I agree I, I think that there were there was a lot of thought put into all of those pieces I think so and I should say I wanted to bring up a minute ago talking about like music and how you know certain instruments and ha represent characters and things that are going on in the film I mean his buddy Lucas this is what he did in Star Wars basically right yeah I mean, you've got your own song for Skywalker and for Darth Vader and for, and for Leia, Leia and everybody, and everybody else right yeah yeah makes sense coming yeah. from the same yeah. Mindset, their buddies. In good company. They probably talked about songs and 
music symbolism. It might have come crap up. like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so our next topic uh, we'll jump into here is who's thirsty. So in The Godfather, there were 61 scenes that featured characters drinking alcohol. Yeah, it's my kind of movie. And even the drinking had symbolism behind it. So the three featured drinks that we'll talk about. Scotch, red wine, and white wine. So scotch, scotchity, scotch, scotch, scotch. When the whiskey is out, it's business time. Hmm. Not just the socks, but the scotch, it's business time. When the whiskey is out... So every good, scene... Good, good call back there. Most people don't know that, that Flight of the Concords <laughs> connection there. Yeah. I was hoping, I was I like hoping that, I like that somebody may, yeah. may pick that up. Oh, yeah. Um, you know when I'm wearing my socks. Time it is. You've got that sexy T-shirt from your softball game three years ago. Your team-building exercise. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, but when the scotch is out, the men are working. It's a sign of masculinity. Uh, there's never a woman drinking scotch. There's never a scene where... Uh, the scotch is out that there's a woman involved. Uh, you see that in the very early workings of the film, that op- opening scene with Bonacera and Vito Corleone. The scotch is there. Um, the, uh, as he's weeping, uh, Bonacera, in that opening scene, he's crying because he's going through the motions of explaining what had happened to his daughter. And Vito tells Tom to pour him scotch, and he hands him a shot glass of scotch. And that is what helps Bonacera pull himself back together and be a man. So that's where he can get the rest of the words out. Real toughen him up. Real, no. real, some real toxic masculinity <laughs> going on in this one. <laughs> it, it is. Uh, again, this is 1972 we're talking about here. So F- 50 years ago, a little different. Uh, the next drink is the red wine. So the red wine here, uh, it's very much an Italian familiar drink. It's a callback to uh, Italian necessity uh, for everything. When the food is out, there's, Italian, uh, there's red wine. In uh, even in one of the quotes, Vito, in his weekend, older, elderly stages, he admittedly opens up to Michael and says, "I've been drinking a lot more red wine lately." And Michael says, "That's all right. It's good for you. You know, tying back to the good health." But he's not drinking as much scotch. Again, he's he's slow. That transition is happening from uh, Vito Corleone to Michael Corleone. And even at the beginning scene, there you see Michael. The first drink that he has with Kay is red wine at the wedding. And it just always cracked me up that, you know, Clemenza is dancing like a fool out on the dance floor. And the first thing he tells Pauly Guido to go get him is, go get me a pitcher of red wine. And brings it to him and he chugs it like water. And that's mm-hmm. what helps him, you know, catch, a, catch his breath is the, <laughs> it's the red wine. Um, and even, you know, in the spaghetti making scene where everybody's a little dark, down in the dumps, you know, Vito's in the hospital, everybody's sad. The red wine comes out when he, when Comenza is explaining to Michael how to make the spaghetti. You never know when you're going to need to make spaghetti, so I'll teach you. And, it's you a know, comfort drink. It's a comfort drink. <laughs> the last drink is white wine. There's only one scene with it in there, um, and where it's featured, it's a party drink, and only the women are drinking the white wine. Uh, it represents lightheartedness, fun, worry-free feelings, and that's what you get a lot of in the city of sin, Las Vegas. And that's where we see Fredo has been exiled to. You know, he's in Vegas, you know, doing the dealings with Mo Green. Um, but in that scene, when he walks in, uh, or when Michael walks in, you know, the band's playing for He's a Jolly Good Fellow and all this pomp and circumstance. And the first thing Michael says is get rid of the women. Get the women out of here. Get the band out of here. You know, I'm not going to touch that white wine. It's an, it showcases another piece where... Um, it showcases another piece where... Um, Fredo has disappointed Michael, not only in that he is, you know, working with somebody outside, of, he sides with somebody outside of the family, he's got the women in the room and business is supposed to be done, you know, the music is too much, 
and there's no scotch. There's no scotch for the business to be done. Hmm. So that was another piece of the white wine um, being in there. And the final scene, drinks. And this is a question that I, I'm, I'm curious to see what your opinion would be, even though I know Kay's not our favorite character. But she confronts Michael after Connie's outburst of, you know, Carlo's assassination. Um, or, yeah, Carlo, Carlo Guido, uh, Connie's husband. He's, he's offed um, by Salenza again, is, uh, you know, she says, I need to know the truth. And, you know, Michael has that whole, you know, power struggle scene where he's like, I, you know, you don't ask me about my business. You know, everybody's familiar with that. I don't have to go into detail about that one. But, you know, it shows another very strong point where Michael is, it's very much, you know, this is the family business. You're an outsider. I'm not going to let you in, Kay. And he allows her to ask him one question about it. He says no. And Kay says, well, this calls for a drink. We never actually see what she's pouring. So my question to you is, is she pouring red wine because she's part of the family? She feels like she's involved with Michael's business dealings? Or is it scotch showing that he's masculine and going in there and doing that? Or is she pouring herself red wine and him scotch? I think it doesn't matter. I think that, like, the point <laughs> is that we're not supposed to know what it is. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I think I would I, – actually, the best answer is probably one of each – the red wine and then also the scotch to maybe mm -hmm. represent both. But I think it's kind of fun that we don't know what it is because it, I, that's, that's the whole point is that she doesn't really know what's going on. She's in the dark and she's to continue to be left in the dark regardless. Right. Even mm -hmm. though she thinks she's not, she's yeah. still obviously, and that really leads into like the second movie hundred percent. Yeah. And she's completely confused. Yeah. All right. A lot of symbolism there. Talking, talking wine, a talking lighting, a lot of shit going on here. All right. So, Back to kind of the movie a little bit about certain characters. So Luca Brazzi, right, played by Lenny Montana. This guy's funny. He was so nervous. <laughs> I love Luca Brazzi, by the way. He's one of my favorite characters. But he's so nervous about working with Marlon Brando that in their first take of their scene together, he actually flubbed some lines. And Francis Ford Coppola loved it so much that he actually kept that cut. And then they added Luca practicing his speech after the fact, which is pretty funny. So it was like a whole extra added scene because of how great he, he basically how great he messed that scene up. Um, talking about a little bit of improvisation, improvisation stuff. Can you spell out the word? James Kahn actually improvised the part where he throws the FBI photographer's camera to the ground, and the, the actor is legit scared. And he came up with the idea um, uh, of throwing the money at the man and make up for the for the breaking the uh, camera. As he put it, where I come from, you broke something, you replaced it or repaid the owner. So he just whipped out that money and paid it, basically on the ground, which is pretty. I mean, that's a pretty kind of cut through we didn't really mention that scene before but it shows off james Conn and how like big of a hothead he is yeah like he's a real he's kind of a dick yeah but in a, in a, in a great way yes um <laughs> speaking of sunny again the whole scene that we mentioned earlier when they're when him and carlo were fighting that actually took four days to shoot and featured more than 700 extras Jeez. and again the garbage or the garbage can lid was improvised by james Conn. So he just picked, I mean, that's the best part. He picks it <laughs> he picks up and starts up. smashing him with it. And then takes the lid and, like, beats it over yeah. the head with it. Yeah. So that was entirely improvised. That's great. Uh, so another piece, a uh, little tidbit here. Coppola, he uh, held improvisation, improvisational rehearsal sessions that simply consisted 
of the main cast sitting down in character for a family meal. So a lot of those scenes um, to get the the feel and the wherewithal of the family and everybody's place for it and, you know, who could speak when, you know, a lot of that was improvised and just, hey, get together, look like you're having a good time, we're going to have the cameras on, don't even, you know, look at the camera, they're not there. And that shows a lot of the chemistry between the cast too, which is mm -hmm. a cool piece. All right, so I think most people assume that Johnny Fontaine is based on Frank Sinatra, but Puzo actually said it's not. But for not Sinatra and everyone else basically believed it was. Yeah. They actually got into a confrontation, and uh, Sinatra was essentially yelling at Puzo, saying, "What the hell? This is not. How are you? Uh, you know, what's the word? I can't think of the word. How are you?" portraying me in this ridiculous way. This is not how I got my yeah, start, et cetera. This is a, this is a false light. You know, and as case. a result, they actually, they actually cut out a bunch of his scenes, and they basically made it to where Fontaine was only around for a couple scenes because Sinatra was so pissed. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, f f I, I guess it was because a lot of people did kind of think at the time Sinatra was involved in all of that, mm -hmm. that he was so upset about it. But if I'm Sinatra now, I'm thinking, you know, that may not have been been too bad. But again, you know, you have that direct association, you know, call back to The Sopranos, a lot of people thought James Gandolfini was actually a bad dude. He just played the role really well. Yeah. So, you know, if you have that, I guess, you know, every time you go somewhere, somebody's thinking, you know, oh, that's a that's a bad dude. You, you get a bad rap. Yeah, that can get annoying. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so back to Lucas a little bit. Lucas actually put together the mattress sequence, which is the montage of crime scene photos and headlines kind of about the war and the five families, et cetera. He did that as a favor to Coppola. Again, for helping him actually fund American Graffiti. He didn't want to be credited, so he's not credited for any of that work. Um, he also used real crime scenes and photos from those crime scenes, and there's a bunch of like actual, legit mobsters that are, you can kind of see throughout that, um, which, is, which is kind of cool. And uh, you know, we, we kind of got to wrap this up, but it's our, it's when we're talking about like actors, so we'll go back to like the best actor category. Pacino actually was not nominated for that. Mm -hmm. He boycotted the Academy Awards because he was nominated for Oscar Best a Best Actor in a Supporting Role. And he was pissed. Yeah. He basically said, that's bullshit, um, because he had more screen time than Marlon Brando, who won the Best Actor <laughs> Award yeah. for an Oscar. I mean, it is kind of bullshit, right? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree. I mean, again, though, it's tough to pick between those two. Well, I know, but like, if you just look at screen, I mean, if so, but if, if, yes, without screen, me knowing about this movie, but I would have. I would thrown into the mix. Yeah, you know, if you say who's best. who's supporting, who's the main actor, you got to say Pacino. Michael is the main character, right? Yeah. Now, if we're and maybe if we're looking at Godfather two, that makes more sense. Where De Niro and Pacino are kind of sharing the same amount of screen time with the flashbacks. Yes, but at that point, when the award was given, that movie wasn't there yet so it was all within that same year where we only had the godfather to go off of so i get it but still <laughs> so all right so talking about the next one last nerd facts this movie was so popular before it even came out as far as buzz that they greenlit the next film before they even finished filming this one which is kind of what they do nowadays right? yeah like yeah. if season one comes out of a show and it's like the first episode or even before it even premieres we're gonna go ahead and already approve season two yeah so it even it happened even back then. Yeah, no, I think th I think that's that's humorous, but at the same time, very interesting and cool that they were like, we've got something here. Like they yeah. they knew what they were doing, and they're like, yeah, we need to make we need to make more of these. Yeah, this is badass. There's a lot of good so. buzz going around. Next category, Heath Ledger Award for scene stealing. So this is for the person on screen that just every time they're on screen, 
while I'm, my attention is completely on them. I've only got one nominee. Maybe you've got more. I just got James Gunn for Sonny. You got any more? So for Scene Stealers, uh, this one was just more of like a, a joking aspect after finding out what I know about the cat now. But the fact that the cat was just a stray and came in yeah. and took that role and just ran with it. <laughs> amazing role by that cat. Okay. And right. that it even was so influential that they had to do the looping over Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. I like that. <laughs> uh, no, but uh, Luca Brassini, his death Luca Brassini. Scene. Yeah. Uh, uh, Bra- yeah, Brassini. He, his face, it just, for me, that was a very much a big scene stealer for that. And then uh, Fredo's Tears scene <laughs> after <laughs> after Vito is shot and him ex, you know exclaiming papa you know that for me was just yeah those are some pretty good scene moments i i i'm getting i gotta go we gotta go james Conn though as far as like the actor that steals this i mean yes. he steals the scenes throughout the entire yeah when he's every on... time he's on camera like these are just one instant yes pieces. okay every time james is out there yeah, he's out he's there next. It. He's next to Pacino, next to Brando, next to whomever. It's like God, con. And it also probably has something to do with the lighting, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah, he's really he's really stealing those scenes. Okay, next category: Peak of the Mountain. This one's going to be kind of hard. So, I'm going to name some people or some things, and you let me know if you think this is their peak. We may have different opinions because we are from different generations. First off, Coppola. So let me let me rattle off some Coppola things that he's created. And you let me know what you think is his peak. So he's got the, let's see. Um, let me kind of go in order. So Godfather comes out in 72. Godfather Part 2 is 74. Apocalypse Now, 77. The Outsiders, 81. Peggy Sue Got Married, 86. It's like, what's Nicolas Cage is like, well, starting off point almost. Mm-hmm. Godfather Part 3 in 90. Bram Stoker's Dracula in 92. And then we got Jack. 92 as well and then the rainmaker 97 like i said he's been done very little since then so what do you think is his peak i think the godfather think so was. i think so because you also have that lead into part two part three you know that can't happen without the godfather part one so i think that's his his coup d'etat if you will uh that's his top you know that's his peak i think this is his like coming out party for me personally i i think godfather two is his peak or even Apocalypse Now a couple years later. I can agree with that. But I get what you're saying. This is definitely like what launches him. Yeah. But I think Godfather, after Godfather 2, he can do whatever the hell he wants. Yeah. Like he's basically like the guy. Yeah. He doesn't do a whole lot, but he could have done a whole lot more if he wanted to. All right. Marlon Brando. He's the next person. So as far as peak, we've got Streetcar Named Desire comes out in 51. The Wild One, 53. On the Waterfront, 54. Mutiny on the Bounty, 62. Godfather in 72, and then Superman 78, Apocalypse Now, as I mentioned, 79. The Freshman in 1990. You ever heard of that movie before? (laughs) Got Brando. It's got old, uh, what's his name? Ferris Bueller. And uh, The Island of Dr. Moreau in 96, which is a really wacky-ass movie. So So I think from a recognizable, Recognizability. Yes, recognizability standpoint. Um, and <laughs> the most iconic um, scene I think he's portrayed in, um, or film that he's portrayed in, excuse me, would be The Godfather. I, I think for this one too. So I'm going with Coppola and Vito, or uh, and Brando, as The Godfather as that top one. Now I should also mention that I have not seen A Streetcar Named Desire. Yeah, I mean, I th- and I think that kind of depends on what generation you're coming from, because I would kind of lead. I would I would agree with you. 
But I also think that a lot of people, a lot of people older than us would argue probably the wild one or on the waterfront. And, and maybe we could say like that's his first career and now his second career, it's like the old Brando versus the young Brando, mm-hmm. right? And it's, I mean, there's a good 20 something year gap there. So he may have multiple, multiple peaks, but he did win. So he won the Oscar for this, but he also, I mean, he won a lot of awards when he was younger too, 20 years old or younger. Anyway, okay. Pacino. Pacino's had a really interesting career. So Pacino, 72, is the Godfather. He's got Serpico in 73. Godfather Part 2 in 90, or in 74, excuse me. Dog Day Afternoon, 75. Then he does Scarface in 83. Dick Tracy, 90. Godfather Part 3, 90. Scent of a Woman, 92. Carlito's Way, 93. Heat in 95. And then Any Given Sunday in 99 there's a lot of other stuff kind of in there and also post that but these those are like the big the big hitters so what do you think says peak i think the peak for al pacino was scarface so it was a little bit later on i think uh the godfather's michael character was the the launching point for him to get into that kind of um that role that he does really well and you see it so many different times um but i think scarface is his yeah, I agree with you. Even though he won the Oscar in Son of a Woman, that was almost like a makeup Oscar. You know, yeah. I mean, that that role, it's fine. It's I mean, it's I mean, <laughs> ooh, yeah, people like that, but like he's he's better in a lot of other movies yeah. that he should have won before. Hell, I'd argue he's better in Dick Tracy. Fucking love Dick Tracy. All right, Scarface for Pacino. James Caan. James Caan. So here are a couple movies he's been in. Seventy two is The Godfather. It's kind of a good kicking off point for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Think about it. Rollerball, 75. Bridge Too Far in 77. Misery in 90. Honeymoon in Vegas, 92. The Program in 93. And let's not forget Elf. I had to put Elf on there, 2003. <laughs> it's not his peak, but let's remember that he was an Elf. Yeah. I think it's a close draw between Misery and um, The Godfather. Because, you know, again, The Godfather is that starting point for him. But the, the portrayal that he had in Misery was really well. And for that movie yeah. to take place with two characters in essentially one scene... It was pretty one setting, yeah. yeah I, I'm, I'm going or, with misery. Me, yeah. I'm going with misery too. Yeah, so. I, he's fucking so good in that movie. Mm-hmm. And Kathy Bates is. I mean, that whole movie is so fucked up. Ooh, she's a she's out there. All right, misery. I, I agree. Robert Duvall. So Robert Duvall, if you didn't know, he was actually in that movie I mentioned earlier with Coppola and Lucas, the team up, THX one one three eight. He's the main guy in that. So that's in seventy one. Follows that up with Godfather seventy two, Godfather two seventy four. And Apocalypse Now. Coppola, I mean, he finds those people. He keeps them. So he's that's in 79. Then he's in The Natural in 84. Days of Thunder. I put a movies I like on here. Days of Thunder in 90. Deep Impact 98. A Civil Action in 98. And then Gone in 60 Seconds in 2000. I mean, he's good in Gone in 60 uh, Seconds. It's right? Gone in 60 Seconds for me. Yeah. For sure. Is it for you? <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. What do you uh, think it is? I, I, that, that's another tough one for me. That, that's, a, that's a tough one for me. Um, but uh, Tom's character is really really good but it's a launching point um yeah. so I, I i defer to you on i that think one. it's days of thunder <laughs> 1990 <laughs> he's so fucking good nut yeah the other justin's shaking his head he agrees all right so days of thunder but i mean it actually probably is apocalypse now quite frankly as far as like the most critically acclaimed movie and then he's like the main one of the main actors in it but i'm, I'm going i'm going days of thunder all right diane keaton I, listen godfather <laughs> she's in all the godfathers <laughs> Her character sucks. It's better in the second one. It's it's just she's just there in the third one. I don't know. I, I, she has a little bit of redemption in the third one. But I don't think those are her peaks. She's also got Annie Hall in 77. 
and then Father of the Bride in 91, and then Something's Gotta Give in 2003. So what do you think? And you can say one of the Godfathers if you want. I think Something's Gotta Give. I think that one was, was it was fun to see her interact with, um, was it Jack Nicholas, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was, yeah. That was a fun one to see for her. It, it, based solely on the what I'm going off of with the Godfather and, and the Godfather, the first Godfather movie where she has this just entire plot where she has no idea what's going on. I think that can't be her peak. Well, and sh- it's, it it's, shouldn't it's, be. it's like her, it's her, it's Jack Nicholson, by the way, not Jack Nicholas. <laughs> <That's the> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, that's kind of, I, I'm going to, this is a similar conversation that we just had about Brando. I think she's got two peaks. I think she's got, Young, uh, young Diane Keaton, and she's got older Diane Keaton, and I think young Di- young Diane Keaton is definitely Annie Hall. I mean, that's a, a very well known, critically acclaimed movie. But I think I think you're right. I think we've got to go. Something's got to give. I mean, she comes back in, in the early 2000s. She's in quite a handful of movies, like right in a row. Yeah, four or five movies. Yeah. Uh, I got another category, not a person, but just mobster films in general. Is this the peak for mobster films? I think this is the launching point again. It's it's the well, let me give you some nominations, and you can decide if it's the peak or not. I agree with you; it's definitely the launching point. But there yes. was a Scarface made in 1932, the original. Yes. But that's then there's like a 40 year old gap, and there's not that many. <laughs> yeah. Godfather again, Godfather one, Godfather two. We already mentioned Scarface. Goodfellas is in 1990. Casino, 1995. Donnie Brasco, 1997. And just for good measure, I put on there The Irishman in 2019. Of course. Yeah. If we just talk in mobster stuff in general, we could also throw The Sopranos in there, yeah. which is like the late 90s, yeah. early I think 2000s. It's, it's hard because you have, you have so many good mafia attributes for The Godfather, but then if The Godfather doesn't happen, then you don't have these other good films like Goodfellas and Casino and you know, Donnie Brasco that come in and you know really hammer it home and you have these really good rules so i don't think that that's the peak i think that's the start so i think it lays the groundwork of what mobster films are going to be or mobster just in media yeah it's the it's the foundation of it and not the you know um italian stereotype that was portrayed before the godfather like they come in they're actual people they you know they're they're a little more respected Mm mm-hmm in their roles, and then you you kind of take off from there. But again, you know, in, they're not just walking cliches. So in, in Goodfellas, though, you, you're not even you're dealing with one guy that gets made into the you know mafia, but it doesn't even really happen. You know, those, the guys are Irish, so it's well, not, it's it's just mobster organized. Crime. I'm going. I I do think God Goodfellas though is the peak. Yeah, I think now for films. Now if we're talking just again in any type of media, we throw in TV, etc. I think it's got to be Sopranos. Yes. Right. Okay. You have any more? Uh, Peak of the Mountain nominees for me? That No, that was a, that was a good run through. Okay, cool. Uh, next category, we've got the um, Star is Born category. So basically, are there changes that would be need to be made to this film if it were to be remade? I, I think I'll, I'll go first with a couple things I would suggest. First of all, there's a few things to remove. It's more, it's more <laughs> removing as opposed to changing. It's... We, we're going to get rid of a lot of the, the, the toxic masculinity. There's yes. probably going to be, there are going to be women and uh, people of color in, in some way yes. represented. 
Uh, we also are probably going to pull out just the blatant racism and homophobia. <laughs> like there's a lot of that going on. So that's getting taken out. Yes. But I'm going to say other than that, for me, please don't remake this. And I don't think I change anything else. No. I think if you were to make a change, like if you were to reshoot this and, you know, re-go through the motions of making this film again, I think the type of crime racketeering that they're involved with have to change with the times. So you would, you know, you would have more of like a, you know, super, super, you know, present time. Mm-hmm. I think Salazzo's pitch would be for a logistics company and getting the shipping and, you know, throwing their weight around and, you know, controlling the the entire shipping industry of the U.S. and how things get to and from across, you know, the country and even importing and, and all of that. I think the that type of crime and even like a sports betting racketeering involvement yeah, in there. I, I think like that. those would be some, some changes that would be made instead of like the olive oil wars that happened or, you know, the narcotics. I think the narcotics would still be a piece of it, so it wouldn't be yeah. a change. But I think That's those would around. be some modern uh, references that would have to be thrown in there. Also, the technology aspect of it, you definitely have to um, find some way of changing that because Michael Corleone is not getting away with that murder in that point, in that scene. Like, somebody's going to have their phone out. You don't think that Tommy gun scene's <laughs> happening at, the, at the, uh, the toll booth? No. You don't think that's no, I don't, I don't think that's happening either. <laughs> all right. Which, uh, yeah, so, all right, you're right. I, I do want to say something, though. First of all, again, please don't remake this. Yes, but don't I, make, I would like to see some of those books that we mentioned making made into movies or television shows. Like I think it would be badass to see the prequel, the in between of Godfather Two and Godfather One. Like let's see a little bit, which is ironic, it's between the old, but the flashbacks. Yeah, let's see what happens. How does he build his empire? Let's learn a little bit more about Sonny, and let's a little bit a little bit more about Hagen. Or again, on the other side, like before Godfather Three happens, like. There's a lot of shit that goes down. We don't really get to see Michael run this vast empire. No. Right? And we could also put in there new categories or new characters, and you could have, like, small spinoffs that are in the world of The Godfather. Maybe not necessarily the Corleones, but, like, their branches. Like, you mentioned the hierarchy. There are a lot of other families that are involved. I think that would be kind of cool to see some of those books or movies made into. Yeah. Uh, and the one, the one that I vote for would be the family Corleone. That's the one I'm going for. Okay. Uh, let's see. Next category. This is a... The new category, we're calling this the favorite you done messed up A.A. Ron moment from the film, which is basically, we've got two categories here, two, two subcategories. These are, these are people dying, all right, as they're dying. So we're going to go ahead and vote on or decide who has the best death scene, and then also who makes the best face during said death scene. Run down for us real quick, just the, just the names of the people who are killed. Okay. And so, maybe the way they die. So you've got Luca Brazzini. His Luca Brazzi. 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 Brazzini's a fish, isn't it? I've I've said it wrong so many times. Is it a fish? Doesn't matter. <laughs> Luca Brazzi. Brazzi. He is uh he's in the scene in the bar parlor trying to get in with the Tatagalia. Just tell us how he dies. Like he's, okay, the strangling. Yeah, it's it's strangling. strangling. Yeah. Uh Polly Gatto. Uh he is the uh Unfortunate gentleman that gets shot in the back of the head in the car in the cannoli scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, quote comes in. Uh, Salazzo gets shot in the head. In uh, Luis McCluskey gets suffers the same fate. Uh, right next to Salazzo. Shot in the neck though. Shot in the neck first, and then the yeah, yeah. then the killer yeah, shot yeah, yeah, in okay. the in the forehead. Uh, Sonny Corleone in the uh, scene with um, 
the toll booth scene where he pulls up and gets obliterated by he the gets Tommy shot gun. Eighty-five yeah. times, no less than that. Victor <laughs> Strazzi. So this is part of the baptism sequence where all of the heads of the five families are getting killed. So uh, Clemenza kicks open, kicks him back into the elevator, pulls a shotgun out of the flower box and shoots him. Mo Green on the massage table gets a bullet in the eye. Uh, Carmine Caneo. 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 He is uh, in the revolving door. Gets shot. Um, Tataglia? Tataglia. <laughs> Tataglia, thank you. Uh, he is in bed with a stripper. They both get just completely obliterated. Uh, Barzini is on the steps of what I'm assuming is City Hall or a courthouse. Gets shot at in the back and then stumbles down, rolls all the way down the steps. Tessio's not actually, it doesn't actually disclose how he's killed, but the face that he's made to Tom trying to get him to, you know, put in one good word for him, old time's sake, but just the shit i i've been made mm-hmm. i've been found out and then carlo rizzi is also strangled suffers the same fate as luca okay so let's do best face first who's, who's your vote uh best face it's definitely luca like the the yeah. eyes bulging out of his eye you know out of his eye sockets as the strangles happen the tongues in the side of his mouth you know just everything is overdone about it and just excellent that is pretty great i'm gonna go mccluskey when he gets shot in the neck and he's just like choking like on his own blood, <laughs> fucking great. Yeah, it is. And great. He's like totally startled, like what the hell is going on? He's like grasping in it. I don't know. I just like it a lot. Also because I probably hate that character so much. Yes. I was like, yeah, see ya. Yeah. Luca's scene was was terribly sad. Like I didn't want to see it. Yeah, you like that dude, especially after that speech he's given to the Don. You're yeah. like, you feel very empathetic for him or sympathetic at least. Absolutely. Uh, all right, best death. This is hard for me. I kind of got I got two, but I'm gonna I'll narrow it down just to one. You want me to go first this time? Yeah, I'm, you I'm, go first. I'm going with the one that I remembered right off the bat, which was Mo Green and the eyeball shot. Yeah. Like, it's it's so – he just is, looks up, and then bullet, blood, and his head just kind of goes down. Like, it's not super – there's not a lot going on, but it's just like I remember that so vividly. The first time I saw it, even when I was rewatching, I'm like, oh, that's a fucking badass way to die. Yeah. I think, um, you know, tying in with the, the mobster feel over the entire movie, uh, the Tommy gun scene. With, with Sonny. Yeah. I think, you know, just everybody unloading every ounce of clip that they have on Sonny. Yeah. It was like, that's that's the way to go out. I got to give honorable mention, though, to, to where, when Carlo gets killed. And, like, it's not even – it's it's when he's getting strangled, but he's getting pulled into the back seat and, like, kick in and he kicks out the front <laughs> windshield. Out the windshield, yeah. That's pretty badass. But, uh, yeah, I still think Mo Green. Okay. Um, let's see. What else? Next category. Next category. Quilf the Raven – Nevermore. So best quotes. I'm going to read the quotes that I got. If you got any more, please throw them in there, and then we'll vote. So the first quote, we've already probably said a lot of these, but leave the gun, take the cannoli, which, by the way, was ad-libbed, if you guys didn't know that. Yeah. Um, in Sicily, women are more dangerous than shotguns, which is fun. <laughs> I, Fredo, you're my older brother, and I love you, but don't ever take sides with anyone against the family again, ever. And may your first child be a masculine child. Speaking about... <laughs> Luca. Uh, my father made him an offer he couldn't refuse here's that full quote Luca Brazzi held a gun to his head my father assured him that either his brains or his signature would be on the contract that's a true story and then the the, the, the Don telling all the other Dons but I'm a superstitious man and if some unlucky accident should befall him and if he should be shot in the head by a police officer or if he should hang himself in his jail cell or if he's struck by a bolt of lightning <laughs> I'm going to blame some of the people in this room, and that I do not forgive. Those are my nominees. Yeah. I think the continuation of that quote uh, from Michael 
explaining the contract piece, the next line that he says, that's my family, that's not me, Kay. I think that that is foreshadowing the entire mm -hmm. plot there. I think that's another piece where, you know, she's trying to put her at ease. Uh, and then the other quote that popped out to me uh, that stuck with me where he was, where Vito says, a man who doesn't spend time with his family can never be a real man. It was another one that was... Also foreshadowing. Yep. What's your favorite? Oh, the offer you can't refuse. Yeah, that's pretty much the most iconic one. I upon rewatch though, the one that made me laugh the most, and I and I do remember it was the the struck by a bolt of lightning. <laughs> well, I, I, that was a, that was just a kind of one in this room. Yeah. All right. So second to last category, inner nerd thoughts. So basically, did we learn anything? Anything you were thinking of as you were watching this? So I, I'll go first. First of all, I, I will say that like that entire opening scene about the. No Sicilian can refuse a favor on his daughter's wedding day. Number one, that's that's probably the worst aspect of this movie. The part that I, I don't want to say I, I, besides K that I just I like the just like the least. It's one of those things that I think that they just couldn't figure out a way to tell that without explicitly saying it. Like yeah. Hagen, if you watch it again, like Hagen just delivers that line. Just basically, he might as well turn to the camera and say, "Here's kind of what's going on, everyone, audience. This is what's happening." Yeah. And I kind of wish that had been done a little bit, maybe not as explicitly or blatant. But as far as, is this true? Do you know if it's true? It is not. It's kind of true. It, from what I had read, just my quick, yeah. you know, quick Google search, is that it is, the, the request piece of it is not that he has to agree to it. Yes. The request of a meeting with him is true. But the request that he actually has to yep. say yes to do what he's doing is not true. Yeah, that's totally true. Yeah. So it kind of it's kind of true. Yeah, kind of yes. The ask is okay. You, you can request to me. He doesn't have to say yes. Yeah. Uh, is this the first example of paparazzi retaliation? <laughs> it's just a, I don't know. I just thought about that. I think yeah. I kind of think it is. Uh, yeah, I think so. I, I think I think you're right. I love the fact that when Michael gets punched in the face later on, his jaw is in fact broken. Unlike a lot of the TV shows and movies you watch now, where you get punched thirty times and all of a sudden you're just fine. Yeah. Like you might have like a bloody nose. Yeah. Or you're or like, you've got the the butterfly band-aid yeah. over it but he gets it. punched like twice and his jaw straight up fucking broken, <laughs> and he cannot talk <laughs> you can see it's it. very realistic uh i we don't have to keep harping on this but i don't i do not understand why kate takes takes michael back last thing i'll say about that it's so frustrating yep. i mean it doesn't make any sense is there a better example in a film of just movie editing than the baptism scene just the music and He's he's saying the entire, the entire creed as he's being as he's as he's becoming the bat you know the great godfather yeah. of the child back and forth between all those scenes and different deaths and, and whatever. Yeah, I don't think Just there is brilliant I, editing. I, I think that's fantastic. And that quote the Raven one more piece where he says, "Do you uh, renounce Satan?" Yeah, that was so powerful. And he was like, "Yes." Well, that's I what you, I mean. Satan. That's as a godfather myself having to having had to do that a few times. Like that's. That's what happens. That's cat. That's Catholicism right there. Yeah. Uh, let's see. How how many things? Gotta get some questions for. How many things do you think Marlon Brando was in as an actor? Just guess. Film wise. Yeah. Yeah. Just in general. Let's say fifteen films. Forty-eight. Forty-eight. That's shocking to me. Yeah. How many things do you think? How many things do you think Pacino has been in so far? Uh, fifty. Sixty-three. Oh, now, here's okay. the best question. How many things do you think James Caan has been in? Uh, I'm, I'm assuming it's going to have to be high, like the other two. So we'll say 
Oh. A little bit lower. I'll say 35. 137. Whew. Okay. Wow. <laughs> I, went, I went the wrong way on that so one. So James Kahn <laughs> wins the award for being in the most things. Wow. You got some thoughts? Because I got, I I got my last thought I want to ask at the end, though, when you're done. Yeah. So um, as far as the, the what did we learn section, uh, don't tell anyone outside of the family what you're thinking ever because it'll get you offed. So that's, a, that's, a, that's something that I learned. Uh, <laughs> and despite all of the felonies, um, all of the bad undertakings that go on, very dangerous men can be lovable oh, sure. and agreeable, agreeable characters. I mean, you learn that lesson here, and you're like, really, that's drilled into your head for The Sopranos. Yeah. Like, listen, they, they have families and shit like that. Like, <laughs> obviously, right? They're not yeah. all bad. Yeah. They're doing things for a particular reason. All right. Last question. Which is better, this or its sequels? I think we don't have to say Godfather 3. Godfather 2. This yeah. one or Godfather 1? I think the Godfather <laughs> 2. I agree. Yeah. I think Godfather 2, and listen, one, I get it. I get why one's ranked higher, but personally, 2 is a better movie. Yeah. For me. And, and actually, for a lot, and for almost everyone I ask, actually, yeah. they, everyone likes 2 better. Yeah. And in two years, you know, we can do the 50th anniversary or rundown of that one, too. 74. That's right. <laughs> impact. Last category the impact of this film. The budget was six million, the worldwide gross, two hundred and fifty million. And who knows how much money it's made since then? I know I personally have two box sets, different DVDs than Blu-rays, and they have another. Anyway, yeah, I've lot. got a, I've got a VHS box set. Yeah, and that I can't even watch anymore. Nope. <laughs> but you know, you've got the DVD. And yeah, I mean, I just keep buying it. Awards again, one best picture, best actor in a leading role went to Marlon Brando, who, by the way, did not attend the ceremony because. He actually had himself represented by uh, Sachin Littlefeather, also known as Maria Cruz, who was a Native American Californian actress. And he re respectfully refused the award to protest the poor treatment of American Indians, uh, now Native Americans, of course, but that's what he said in entertainment, um, as well as the wounded knee incident. So he stepped back and didn't, didn't uh, accept the award. It also won Best Adapted Screenplay by Mario Puzo and Francis Ford Coppola. And it also won 28 other awards and was nominated for 30 times. So what is this movie's impact on society? So I think going back to my, my lighting tidbit, I think you don't have the impact of the dark films, the, you know, the, the, the noir films. It was, a, it was a, a genre that was coming up, but I don't think you would have seen that much more of an impact on it past if the godfather didn't happen i don't think you see that and i don't think you know you get the very very dark dc universe that's even nowadays where you see you know how much darker all of the films are you know the batman sequences where you have the very you know heavy you know ominous scenes i don't think even the batman scenes happen without i think Willis's it remakes the, just to be clear also and i don't know if this is a good or a bad thing we also don't get the battle of winterfell in, in game of thrones mm -hmm. which that's actually a, that's one of the bad things that came out of The Godfather. Anyway, um, the way that the movie is made and all the tricks, yes, that's a huge impact just on filmmaking in general, mm -hmm. right? As far as society, I mean, again, we've talked at great lengths about how iconic this film is, the amount of quotes that have come from it. This is just part of the lexicon of movie making, of mobsters, of America, mm -hmm. right? And I think it's just, it's a, it's a work of art. It's it incredible. Is. Well, shit, that was a long time to talk about The Godfather, but we should because, as we said, it's, it's so amazing of a film. If you haven't seen it, what the hell are you doing with yourself? 
if you have seen it, go watch it again. Because ha- on the rewatch and having rewatched it dozens of times, I still found it as amazing this time around as I did the first time. Yeah, I mean, there were no there were no pieces. Everything like had my attention the entire time. Yeah. All right, there you have it. The Godfather 50th anniversary. Do a little bit of nerd outreach. First of all, thank yous. I'm going to thank our co-host today, Brandon, for joining us. Thanks, man. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And nerd out. It was, we, we were fucking certainly nerd out. <laughs> if you want to, first of all, we love all of our listeners, so please share, rate, etc. Send in those show suggestions to nerdisthenewcoolpodcast at gmail.com. Like and follow us, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, etc. You can also check out our YouTube channel where we have a lot of different nerd bites and nerd takes. So please pop in there. On our next episode, we are going to be doing the 30-year anniversary of a movie we all love, Wayne's World. Nice. Excellent. Excellent. Very excited to break that down. So until next time, I'm Justin. This is Brandon. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Bye-bye.